This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. Right now, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States is approaching 679,000. The death toll has more than doubled in the last week in the U.S. to more than 34,000. In part, that's because probable coronavirus deaths are now included in some state totals. Across the globe, more than 2.2 million people have contracted the virus with nearly 151,000 dead. Today, governors in a few states are announcing they are taking small steps towards beginning to reopen their societies and their economies. And we have some brand new models just into CNN that suggest some states might be able to relax some restrictions as soon as May 4th, though other states may need to wait until June or July. We'll discuss that more with Dr. Sanjay Gupta coming up. We are also getting brand new details from a disastrous call with Vice President Pence where Senate Democrats pressed him on testing. Democratic sources say there were no clear answers. Multiple governors from both parties say they still do not have the necessary supplies to conduct as much testing as they need or equipment, and they're in desperate need of more federal help. But today, President Trump tweeted, the states need to step up their testing. The buck stops there, suggests President Trump. The president also lashed out at many familiar targets, ranging from Democratic congressional leaders to President Obama and Vice President Biden. In a day after he told the nation's governors directly that they would call their own shots and that they were all very capable people, the president today tweeting that states run by three Democratic governors should be, quote, liberated, whatever that means. He attacked New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo by name, saying that Cuomo should complain less and do more. This was Governor Cuomo's response. First of all, if he's sitting home watching TV, maybe he should get up and go to work, right? How many times do you want me to say thank you? But I'm saying thank you for doing your job. This was your role as president, okay? This kicks off today with CNN's Caitlin Collins live for us at the White House. Caitlin, some of these protesters in states objecting to the guidelines that both state and national health officials say are saving lives, they're also challenging Republican governors. Here's uh, one protest against Ohio Republican Mike DeWine from earlier this week. But President Trump is only encouraging protests against three Democratic governors, and pointedly, they're in states that he wants to win in November. Yeah, and he's made no mistake about that. And certainly, Jake, it's notable because just yesterday the president was saying it is up to governors to make these decisions about when they feel it's safe to reopen their states. And now the president is encouraging these protesters who are pushing back at those stay-at-home measures, some of them strict, that a lot of these governors have put in place. And the question is, is it going to set up this broader clash where the president is encouraging these protesters to push back against these restrictions while these governors feel that they need to stay in place? After unveiling a plan to reopen the country that didn't include a national testing strategy, President Trump is lashing out at states and telling them to expand testing on their own. Trump's phased approach at reopening the nation doesn't address the concerns he heard about testing from governors, business executives and lawmakers in recent days. Despite that, Trump said some states could reopen by the end of the month or even earlier. It's up to the governors. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said his state wouldn't be able to fully reopen without federal help. Help on testing, because states can't do that. 
Trump tweeted before Cuomo even finished speaking, telling him to spend more time doing and less time complaining. And the president accused him of never thanking the federal government. Cuomo fired back almost instantly. First of all, if he's sitting home watching TV, maybe he should get up and go to work, right? After acknowledging the president's efforts to help New York, Cuomo said he's been appreciative. How many times do you want me to say thank you? But I'm saying thank you for doing your job. This was your role as president. They all want to open. Less than a day after Trump told governors it was up to them when states reopened, he embraced protesters in three states who rallied against their governor's stay-at-home orders. Somebody come back May 1st. Trump tweeted that Minnesota, Michigan, and Virginia should be liberated. All three states have Democratic governors and are considered battlegrounds for the presidential election. Now, Jake, as you can see from the videos, a lot of these protesters are the president's own supporters. They're wearing his shirts, waving his flags, and he acknowledged yesterday that there are people in those groups that like him and that listen to him when he says, when he tells them uh, essentially guidance of what to do. He dodged a question yesterday. Now he's tweeting that they should be, these states should be liberated. And we should note that one of the governors is responding. That's Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who said earlier today she hopes the president's tweets do not incite more protests in her states. And she said that anyone with a platform should be using it to encourage people, not the way the president is using his today. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Governors today are announcing their next steps after President Trump released his reopening guidelines uh, I want to bring in CNN's Nick Watt, who's in Los Angeles. And Nick, most governors are making it clear they will need help from the federal government with testing and more in order to reopen. Absolutely, Jake. They need the help with testing because, number one, they're going to need to keep track of this virus once we start to reopen. And they also need testing to meet those guidelines laid down by the president. A flurry of governor activity today. We had Newsom here in California advising other governors don't play politics. Governor Whitmer in Michigan saying we will re-engage our economy when it's safe. Governor Murphy in New Jersey saying if you're mad, if you want someone to blame, blame me. It is on me. It is also increasingly clear today that we have looked pretty similar. 97% of us across the country under stay-at-home orders. Pretty clear that moving forward, we will begin to look very different in different places. This afternoon in Jacksonville, Florida, they're reopening beaches and parks with some restrictions. Folks, this can be the beginning of the pathway back to normal life. But please respect and follow these limitations. The president says 29 states now in the ballgame to open relatively soon. Perhaps Utah. Definitely in the next couple of weeks, we believe that certain parts of the economy could be open. Utah has less than 3,000 confirmed cases, but take, say, Massachusetts, more than 32,000 cases. There's no doubt that Massachusetts continues to see an uptick in new, new cases, tests, and in, unfortunately, fatalities. In Texas, state parks will open Monday. A week from now, stores can open for pickup only, but... School classrooms are closed for the remainder of the 2019-2020 school year. Governors, not the president, will be calling the shots. We must get this right because the stakes are very high. When we open things up, can we expect the spike? We hope not, but it won't shock us if that occurs. What we'll see is an establishment 
a venue, a locale. Some saying we're just not there yet. You have to develop a testing capacity that does not now exist. We cannot do it without federal help. West Virginia wants to test every single resident and staff member in the state's nursing homes. Mississippi just extended its stay-home order another week. I hoped and I prayed we would be there based on their metrics. We're just not there yet. Reopening will be regional. Opening some states and not others, it's a little bit like, you know, as somebody said to me, it's a little bit like having a peeing section in the swimming pool. Imagine if Georgia was open, but Alabama wasn't. It wouldn't make much of a difference. Some neighboring states are coordinating a new block just formed in the middle of the country. There is no vaccine yet, no proven therapeutics, but remdesivir designed to fight Ebola, apparently now showing promise in COVID-19 trials. We've had a lot of our patients um, improving and going home, and I think that we're all really pleased to see that. It's hard to know at this point if that's related to the study drug or not. And let's not forget there are still thousands of healthcare workers on the front lines. We have a lot of sick patients, uh, multi-organ failure. Still so many lives in the balance. And we have a lot of young patients. Uh, this patient uh, here, it's a pregnant patient who is uh, unfortunately at the verge of being intubated. Uh, we're trying to save her. Now, I'm at LAX today because the mayor of Los Angeles last night said that air travel in and out of the city had fallen by 95%. I didn't believe him, but I think he's right. I've been here two hours and I've seen, I think, three planes in the sky. And interesting, going back to the president's guidelines, non-essential travel is a phase two opening up. So California is actually doing pretty well on those guidelines. But by my back of the envelope reckoning, we are still... 24 days away from LAX getting back to anything near normal. That is us uh, here in Los Angeles. I want to go now to Lauren Fox in Washington, D.C., who has some reporting on a phone call and the vice president. Lauren? Well, as more and more tension continues to build, as lawmakers are looking for when their states could be reopened, the vice president had a phone call today with Senate Democrats. And there was a lot of frustration that was boiling over on this phone call, I'm told that Senator Angus King, who's an independent who caucuses with the Democrats, grew so frustrated with the explanation for when testing would be available and what dependency was going to be put on the states to make sure tests were available, that he told the vice president that this was a dereliction of duty. And he told the vice president, according to this source, that, quote, I have never been so mad about a phone call in my life. He wasn't the only Senate Democrat getting frustrated. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, he had concerns about the fact that the vice president, excuse me, the president was tweeting. And what he said was inciting division at a time when the country should be coming together. And Senator Brian Schatz told me that he was so frustrated on this phone call because he just didn't understand what has really changed. He said all these promises are getting made, but they sound like the same promises that were made last week, last month, and the month before. All these frustrations really coming into sight as there is more and more pressure on the president and some states to try to put together a plan to actually move beyond the coronavirus. When that plan is going to be available, who's responsible for it? Senate Democrats getting very frustrated that they don't believe that the president is taking leadership in this moment. Jake. All right, Lauren Fox, thank you so much. Coming up, breaking news, new modeling showing the U.S.
U.S. may have already seen the peak of the virus. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us next. Then China raising new questions after revising the death toll in the city where the coronavirus originated. That's ahead. Stay with us. We have some... We have some breaking news for you. New modeling from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which is often touted by the White House, shows the peak of the coronavirus hit the U.S. two days ago and that Vermont, West Virginia, Montana and Hawaii are states that could begin to relax some aspects of the social and physical distancing measures by May 4th. However, other states, including Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Utah, Arkansas and Oklahoma, They may need to wait until late June or early July, according to the modeling. Joining me now to discuss this and much more is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good to see you as always. Obviously, this is just a model. It's a projection. It's not a fact. But the fact that the uh, or the the projection that the IHME found that the peak of the virus was already on April 15th, is that encouraging news? Is that something for people to hold on to? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely encouraging news. And, and you know, some of these models have sort of uh, tracked uh, for, for, for a bit of time now. So, you know, they're starting to get a little bit more confidence in these models. But, you know, when you read these these reports carefully, uh, you find a couple things. One is that uh, they're, they're, they're always going to change still. Uh, these models are going to change and they want to continue to be able to reevaluate this even up until the day before one of these states may meet the criteria for reopening. But I think also as part of these these models, there's a lot of assumptions. The assumptions, Jake, which you and I have been talking about for some time, is that the testing has to be widely available in these places. So because they, they acknowledge that as soon as you start to reopen things, there are people who are otherwise not going to become infected who will become infected. They will start being out in the community. Uh, the virus is in the community. So there will be people who get infected. Uh, the key is to make sure that those people can be identified right away, Jake, isolated. Their contacts, the people they came in contact with, can be traced and they can be put in quarantine. And that the hospitals can take care of people if people get sick. Those are assumptions that need to be put in. One thing, Jake, I think is worth pointing out is that they also put a number on this. Uh, you and I talked about the guidelines yesterday. They said you needed to have a 14-day uh, downward trend of cases, which is which is an important metric. But from where to where... I think a lot of people were asking what they said as part of this report is that the estimated infections in the community has to be less than one in a million, less than one in a million. No matter where you live, no matter what community, the rate of infection has to be less than one in a million to consider reopening as well. So that's a significant number, Jake. Why did the projected death toll in this new model drop from 68,000 back down to to 60,000? I, I think there was um, uh, a little bit of, of benefit really coming from southern states in this model. I think one of the things that uh, the modelers noted was that they were able to have evidence of better social, physical distancing in a few southern states than they predicted. As you know, there were several states in the south that sort of enacted these physical distancing guidelines later, these stay-at-home orders later, and it was unclear uh, just how much people were abiding by these. So what they did was pretty interesting. They actually used anonymous cell phone data, Jake, and um, sort of got an idea of how likely people were to be sort of staying put by looking at this anonymous cell phone data. I thought that was pretty interesting. But when they looked at that, they, they sort of said, you plug that into the model, it actually showed that people did a better job of staying home than they, than they predicted. I think that brought it down a bit. 
Vermont, West Virginia, Montana, Hawaii have have been hit much less hard by the virus. What are your biggest concerns if they follow the lead of this model and prepare to reopen those four states? I I think the the biggest concern is that um, there may be this sort of attitude of complacency. You know, we kind of dodged the bullet. Uh, Things uh, did not get that bad. Hopefully that's the case. Everybody hopes that's the case. But the the concern is that once you start to develop uh, a cluster of cases, we saw this in many places around the country, Jake. I mean, there'd be evenings when you and I would talk, there'd be, you know, a dozen or so cases by the next day. There might be a few hundred people who, who had been infected. So that's the biggest concern. And when that starts to happen, it's not linear growth. It's, it's uh, logarithmic or exponential growth in those places. So um, you, I think that's the biggest concern. Also, um, widespread testing means widespread testing. I mean, that, that, that there's no, no two ways about that. That might mean that people who start to go to work get tested on a regular basis, even at their place of work. People who are going into the community uh, have community centers that they can visit on a regular basis to get tested. That may be sort of one of the biggest characteristics of, of the new normal, the term that everyone likes to use, going forward. Yes, we talk about masks. Yes, we talk about physical distancing, absence of large gatherings, all that. But the idea that on a regular basis of some sort, people will need to get tested, not everybody in the country, but some people who, who can't keep physical distance may need to get tested, I think, is, is needed in those places before they can reopen. And many of those places still talk. I don't know about those states in particular, but there's many places around the country that say they still don't have the infrastructure in place to to test and then trace. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I, I, I reached out to Senator Angus King. He's an independent senator from Maine, who was very frustrated with Vice President Pence on that phone call Lauren Fox reported for us earlier in the show and, and, and said, what are you so frustrated about? He said, this, the states can't do this. They need the federal government to do the widespread testing. Uh, and he, he said it's just a, a complete abdication of leadership. Um, based on your knowledge and how this has been done in the past during other pandemics, I mean, isn't this the traditional role of the federal government? I mean, isn't that why we have the Centers for Disease Control that's not just for Georgia, even though it's located in Georgia, it's for the whole United States? I've talked to lots of public health officials, including a former head of the Centers for Disease Control, who said that, you know, the the idea of actually getting the testing done, completed, is, is is a duty that falls on the shoulders of the federal government. I think it's important to redefine, I think, people, Jake, uh, what, what testing really means here. Uh, testing, in part, is the lab. Uh, there are many labs that have been set up, you know, in hospitals, public health, uh, big commercial labs like Quest. Uh, the, and so the capacity has definitely increased. But as you've heard, Jake, you've talked about you may not have enough swabs in one place. You might not have enough of the medium to actually transport the swab to the lab. You might not have enough of the reagents at the lab. That's the supply chain issue. Many of those supplies are coming from other countries around the world, including China. How do you bring those supplies in? It's not the states sort of negotiating directly with China or other places around the world. It's the country. It's, it's the federal government. So the testing capacity has gone up. And I think maybe this is a, a sort of commingling of, of terms. But capacity can have, go, can have uh, gone up. But if you don't have the supplies because the supply chain has been disrupted, how do you fix that problem? If you don't have a swab, it doesn't matter that you have 10 technicians waiting by to, to, to do the test. You've got to have the swab. So right. therein lies a little bit of the problem, Jake. And what Senator King said to me was states do not have 
the heft of the federal government. They don't have the Defense Production Act. They can't force companies to do things the way that presidents can. Sanjay, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to listen to Dr. Gupta's daily podcast, Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction, wherever you access your podcasts. Do you remember everywhere you went and all the people you may have been in contact with over two weeks? Why the answers to those questions will play a key role in reopening the country. Stay with us. The White House has announced that a major part of any reopening strategy will rely on what's called contact tracing. That's a way that officials can investigate where coronavirus positive patients have traveled to determine who else may have been exposed. And CNN Sarah Seiden reports health experts are saying this tracing is critical to avoid a resurgence in cases and fatalities. This was painful. Amy Driscoll says coronavirus had her in a vice grip that wouldn't let go for weeks. Every breath, every movement, every, you know, raising your arms, rolling over in bed, every single thing is painful. Less than two hours after arriving home from the hospital, her phone rang. It was the county health department asking lots of questions. Who have I seen in the last two weeks? Where was I in the last two weeks? Who was I in contact with? Where do I work? The health department was doing what is called contact tracing. You have to trace every person who comes up positive. Trace means investigate investigate all those prior contacts. Driscoll traced her steps. She'd gone to work. Her boss and staff had to be contacted. She went to a restaurant for lunch. She went to her hair salon. They had to be contacted. She went to a Cleveland Cavaliers game. All her family members who sat with her were contacted. This kind of contact tracing is happening across the country and the world. From those suffering through the deadly COVID-19 outbreak in New York to those connected to the first major U.S outbreak in Washington state to California, the first place where a statewide stay-at-home order was announced. Experts say without contact tracing and enough testing, America and the world cannot reopen safely. We're going to be uh, at risk of resurgence of this disease, not just in the fall, but going into next year. So you're saying without contact tracing, a massive amount, without testing, a massive amount, we could find ourselves right back where we started. I think we could find ourselves very much at risk of another resurgence. But the U.S. does not have enough people to do the tracing. State health officials estimate there are about 2,000 people doing this work now. But Johns Hopkins University warns we need at least 100,000. For now, contact tracing is only as good as your memory. This is hard. I mean, before stay-at-home orders, can you remember all the people you had close contact with over a two-week period, say, at the coffee shop? Or at the grocery store? Or at a restaurant? Or at your child's school? And that's where big tech like Google and Apple are jumping in. They will soon have an app you can voluntarily download built with health departments so they can see detailed location data from your cell phone. But the public may be skittish about it due to privacy concerns. Still, contact tracing requires serious legwork. L.A.'s mayor is pushing for federal help. We're probably going to need hundreds of thousands of Americans to be put to work. It should be funded by the feds, but enacted locally. As for Driscoll, her contacts have been found. The health department tells her that none have symptoms so far. But testing is still a problem. I've had no additional testing. 
Amy Driscoll says she has no additional testing, so she doesn't really know whether or not she is still contagious or shedding the virus. And that's a bit scary for her. She doesn't want to go out into the community. But I should mention this, Jake, just this week, the CDC has told CNN that it started a pilot program sending community members and protection teams into eight states to try to give them and ramp up contact testing. We should also mention the testing that's going on right here in Los Angeles, really important drive up testing. It's one of the ways that they're trying to deal with this, but also technology is so incredibly important. They're trying just about anything to have an army of contact tracers so that we can return to some semblance of normalcy. Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner in Inglewood, California. Thank you so much. Leading experts say that the U.S. is uh, anywhere from 12 to 18 months away from a vaccine that would be ready for the public to combat coronavirus. But one doctor is working on a short-term solution, might act as a kind of Band-Aid until the vaccine's ready. Dr. Robert Gallo is one of the scientists, of course, who was credited with discovering HIV. He developed the first antibody test for that. He's leading an initiative to repurpose the oral polio vaccine in hopes of slowing down the outbreak. And joining me now is Dr. Robert Gallo. Dr. Gallo, uh, thanks for joining us. If your team's able to repurpose the oral polio vaccine, how effective do you think it could be against the coronavirus? Enormously so. But I first want to say that this is with my colleague and especially driven by uh, Konstantin Chimikov, who came from the Soviet Union to the FDA, where he's a virologist and uh, associate director of the vaccine division. We, we know the information from the past and uh, it's been kind of forgotten and sitting on the shelf. So I wouldn't say a Band-Aid. I would say far more than a Band-Aid, but it, it's different than your conventional vaccines. And by the way, I don't think anybody can give any date on any vaccine of the specific variety because you just don't know if they're gonna work. You have a vaccine when you have it, when it's safe, proven, and when it's effective, proven. We don't know when that's gonna be. You, could, you, know, you may not even have it. You know, Sometimes antibodies are good, right. sometimes they're not very good. So, yes, we're... So tell we're, us about how this uh, oral polio vaccine would work. Polio re- Pardon me? Sorry. Tell us, tell us how I, the, I the oral polio vaccine would work for this. Yeah, it's what we call the innate immune system, the alarm. It's an RNA virus, like the coronavirus is. And when you get an infection or when a virus replicates, like the oral polio vaccine replicates in you, though it's very, very safe. And if you're previously vaccinated for polio, it's completely safe. Then you stimulate what is the emergency response that we inherited from lower forms like frogs, turtles, and vertebrates that don't have a lymphoid system. So this is not antibody. This is not killer T cells. This is not specific for a protein. It includes things like you've heard of interferon, for example. It's your immediate reaction that says, wow, I sense an RNA molecule, the virus's genetic information that shouldn't be here. And they trigger a lot of reactivity that can block the virus at the gate. I think it could be really a major help. And I think we got to get it out there fast. More than you're, you're how, thinking how, about because you want to be cautious. How close are you to getting it developed and available to the public? Availability is easy. It's in the, it's in the storage of uh, companies like Sanofi Pasteur, Biopharma, and some others. And uh, they've, they've already begun to go forward with the allocation. So we'll do a 10,000 person beginning trial, uh, Mr. Taper. And then beyond that, we, we want to go really for fast data to the people in the front lines. And um, I think it'll be fast tracked and we're getting that kind of conversation with people within the government. 
you know, the FDA knows about it. We're going forward with it. Then we get after getting that approval and we hope everything will happen in weeks, not months, and that it'll come out very quickly. It's really safe. So let me emphasize that it should not have side effects of some of the uh, potent drugs or other things that are still experimental. This has been used on millions of well, people. Let me ask you, because we've heard, obviously, about the use of hydro, hydroxychloroquine uh, as a drug to potentially help coronavirus patients. A new report shows that um, the experimental drug remdesivir might be helping speed up patients' recovery times. Remdesivir was, was tested against Ebola. It was not effective against that. Uh, but right now, 2,400 patients are in a drug trial to see if it will work against coronavirus. What do you think about remdesivir's potential effectiveness? It's, you know, I can't say for sure until I see published information and more about it. Uh, I'm, you know, it's, it, it targets the enzyme of the virus, the polymerase that copies RNA, so it could be effective. Uh, it's after you're infected that you're talking about. This is not, you know, this is not prevention. I'm talking about mainly prevention. Uh, but, you know, I hope for the best. I haven't seen enough to, um, to be very, very comfortable yet, but the word today from Chicago hospitals and including, I guess, the place where I, I spent my time, University of Chicago, uh, sounds much more interesting than I would have expected. So it's, it seems encouraging. What else can I say? The hydroxychloroquine, less, less known, I think, and maybe there's contradictory reports on it right now. And uh, again, you want to see certainly more information about it. With this, there's a lot of information. Well, Dr. Robert Gallo, we certainly wish you the best of luck. Uh, with this. We hope it works. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, and thanks for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Jake. Tens of thousands of small business owners now left hanging out to dry after the federal loan program runs out of money. But can Republicans and Democrats work together again in time to fix it? Then a growing outcry in Spain after children have not been allowed to go outside at all for more than a month. Stay with us. Democratic Washington State Governor Jay Inslee is calling President Trump's Twitter tirade, quote, unhinged. This comes after a series of tweets in which the president called for the liberation of Michigan, Minnesota and Virginia, whatever that means. Those are three states where protesters have been rallying against Democratic governors stay at home orders. Inslee said that the president's statements not only encourage violence and illegal acts, but Inslee says the president is putting millions of people in danger of contracting coronavirus. In money, the woman who ran the Small Business Administration for the Obama administration is now urging Democrats in the Senate to drop their demands and replenish the small business loan program now. Karen Mills told Roll Call, quote, things that have to be implemented quickly can't have a lot of bells and whistles or else there will be too many unintended consequences one of which is delay, and we don't have time to delay, unquote. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, Senate Democrats say they want more funding for hospitals and local governments in addition to new rules so that the loans can also go to underserved small businesses. What are you hearing about negotiations? The money's run out. Yeah, the money's run out. I'm hearing they're getting closer to a deal, Jake, but it is going to come next week, which is a problem in itself. But in terms of the contours of the deal for the Paycheck Protection Scheme, I'm hearing that the money could be more than $250 billion, more like $300 billion. And critically to what you just mentioned, there won't be strings attached. 
Lenders of all shapes and sizes have told me that they do not want more conditions attached to these loans because getting them out to people has been complicated enough, quite frankly. The compromise, and it's the wrong word, but I'll use it, is that there will be more money for hospitals, I'm hearing, perhaps as much as $100 billion. The money for states, though, will come later. The deal here clearly resonates and makes the point that all of these things are important. They all need money. But for small businesses, the alarm bells are ringing. It's an emergency and it's been one for the last two days. So a sandwich shop owner in Phoenix told us about his struggle. Uh, He said his name's Josh Garcia. Uh, He said he barely made his last payroll. He said it took him 13 days and six revisions to his loan application in order to get his money. Finally, he got it this morning. He says that that money will keep his business afloat for the next three months. He's one of the fortunate ones because he got the money. But I keep hearing about others uh, who have not been able to get through and not been able to get the money. And they're going to maybe have to face some tough decisions over this weekend even. Absolutely. To your point, he's one of the lucky ones. There are many that are still trying. And right now they can't even apply given that the money's out. Restaurant sector is a really important one. The average cash buffer in this country for a restaurant is about 16 days. So some have less, some have more, but we're already one month into this shutdown. I spoke to one of the country's largest online lenders this week, and he said, look, American businesses are fighters, but they've maxed out on credit cards, they've borrowed from friends, they've crowdsourced in their communities, and time has run out. You know, I also spoke to Karen Mills, who you just mentioned. She told me in a best-case scenario, 20% of small businesses in this country will fail as a result of what's going on here. Every day counts and every day means job losses, Jake. Yeah, no, Karen Mills saying to Senate Democrats, cut it out, get that money out the door. Unemployment claims are overwhelming states. Florida had to add 100 computer servers and almost 2,000 call center staff to help with demand. Vermont's governor authorized his state to issue $1,200 checks to those caught in the backlog, yet These situations might not speak to just how many people really are unemployed. It's just giving us a sense here. We know they've all been challenged. Governor Phil Scott of Vermont saying, look, the Labour Department has until Saturday night to clear the backlog. Otherwise, we're going to start cutting checks just to prepay people for the benefits that they're due. They said that they'd had 80,000 claims just in that state alone since mid-March. Around 40 percent had issues That's been the challenge here. But my biggest fear, Jake, and I I keep saying it, is gig economy workers, 23 million people, where they've had to build a new system to get them on board. This is going to be my fear, I think, going forward. All right, Julia Charlie, thank you so much. In our world lead today, the UK is launching a vaccine task force to accelerate development after the health minister there said exiting a full lockdown will not happen until there is a vaccine. In Denmark, more restrictions being lifted, allowing courts and some small businesses, including driving schools and hairdressers, to reopen. French President Emmanuel Macron telling the Financial Times that the EU is facing its, quote, moment of truth to provide financial solidarity in this crisis. In the same interview, Macron called out China's lack of transparency, saying there are things we do not know about what happened in China, and it is up to the Chinese government to be honest and tell the world. The Chinese government, of course, is revising the total death toll in Wuhan, the epicenter of this pandemic, increasing the number by 50 percent. CNN's David Culver joins me now live from Shanghai. And David, this comes after a lot of questions about how the Chinese government has handled this pandemic. What prompted these new numbers? 
Jake, you and I have talked about this extensively, and the official line from the Wuhan city officials is that they're doing this to show accountability to history, to the people and the victims, as well as to ensure open and transparent disclosure of information. That's the official line. But it comes as numbers around the world are continuing to rise. China, as you pointed out, facing increased scrutiny over their transparency or lack thereof. Now, President Trump did tweet about this today, saying that China doubled the number of deaths. That's not actually true. They they only changed within Wuhan alone. City officials there adding that 50 percent increase. But where the president is likely right is that in suggesting uh, the actual number is probably far higher than what even they're putting out now, because we've reported extensively on the early claims of cover up, the underreporting, the silencing of early whistleblowers, the censoring of information online. And some there were even telling us early on that their loved ones, Jake, were never tested. Uh, yet we're told they died of severe pneumonia. And so you have to wonder if that's just within the city of Wuhan they're changing. Outside of that, are the numbers then going to be revised once more? All right, David Culver in Shanghai. In Spain, children have not been allowed to leave their homes for five weeks. And understandably, kids and their parents and caregivers are getting a little restless. They have started to free the children movement, one echoed even by the mayor of Barcelona. CNN Scott McLean joins me now. And Scott, Spain is the only European country that has this specific type of restriction on children going outside. Is there any plan to lift the restriction? So, Jake, we've been asking that exact question to the prime minister's office today, but so far we haven't gotten a specific answer. Spain has one of the strictest lockdowns on planet Earth. People here are not allowed to leave their houses to exercise or to go for a walk, and only certain people are even allowed to leave to go to their job. The state of emergency did make a specific exemption so that people could leave to walk their dogs, but made no similar exemption for people to let their kids out to blow off some steam. And you'd be really hard-pressed to find anyone in central Madrid who has anything resembling a backyard. There is a petition now circulating online. It has some 55,000 signatures asking the government to loosen restrictions to give kids some leniency to go outside. And Jake, they say the health authorities here say that when restrictions are lifted, normalcy will not be the same as before. All right, Scott McLean in Madrid, Spain. Thank you so much. One Hollywood legend has a special special message for frontline workers and hospital staff. I'm Robert De Niro, and I'm a New Yorker just like you. The only difference is you are all heroes. We'll talk to Robert De Niro live next. Stay with us. As New York continues to be the hardest hit state in the country, more than 15,000 deaths and 220,000 cases Actors, sports leaders, and other celebrities have been supporting frontline workers in a variety of ways, from acts of kindness to major donations, including my next guest, Robert De Niro, a noted New Yorker, who joins us now. Uh, Mr. De Niro, thanks so much for joining us. You're encouraging, among the many things you're doing to try to help out, uh, you're encouraging people to donate to the All In Challenge to raise money to help feed vulnerable Americans. And anyone who donates could win a walk-on role in your new Scorsese film with DiCaprio. Tell us about that. To make sure that well, Leo asked me to do that, and uh, Marty and I thought, of course, uh, anything at this point. Um, and we're just <laughs> we're just figuring out when we we start shooting. But uh, of course, it's right. the least uh, I could do. You also recorded a video message for frontline workers and hospital staff at New York Presbyterian. 
Um, how does this moment compare to the aftermath of 9-11 uh, for you as a, as a New Yorker trying to help out and as somebody watching how the city is coming together? Well, in, in 9-11, it was uh, it feels the same, <clears throat> felt the same, except this is uh, much more. Um, it's it's something you you'd see in a movie. I never expected anything like this to happen and happen so fast. And I mean, a month and a half ago, we saw it coming two months ago, but it just, it's, uh, it's unreal to see every big city in, in the world and in Europe and everywhere just sort of empty. Uh, I, I, you only see that in a movie and it's happening to us. I, um, I'm, I am, must say that I wish that we had, People had acted that the government had acted earlier. They had enough warning um, because we would not be at this stage of this uh, pandemic. I think if if uh, that had happened, it's just uh, it just seems like that's what it was. But we're weathering it. We're going through it. And it's it's not it's not easy. And we don't know where it's going to wind up. I want to ask you about a fellow uh, New Yorker. I was going to say, well, Andrew I'm, Cohen sorry, is doing a great job. He's doing a great okay. job. It's, yeah. so, it's so refreshing to see him speak and take charge of this thing, no matter what happens. Even if he's, even if we did get too many uh, um, ventilators or too many hospital beds, we, we were proactive. He was proactive and made sure that if something did happen, God forbid, as bad as it did, and it might still, God forbid, he was, uh, he he took action. Uh, so I am very uh, proud of his behavior. I want to ask you about a different uh, prominent New Yorker in all this, Dr. Fauci, originally from uh, Brooklyn. He was quoted in the New Yorker uh, talking about how somebody like him deals with public officials. He referred to the philosophy of the Godfather. It's nothing personal. It's strictly business. And in an interview with me a few days ago, when I asked about why people in leadership positions didn't heed his calls for, for social distancing, uh, back in February, he quoted the Irishman saying it is what it is. And I know that uh, Fauci is a, a big fan of yours. Um, what do you think about the job Fauci's doing? I think he's great. I, I, he's a New Yorker, Italian-American. I understand him without him having to say that much. He's trying to walk a fine line and uh, be responsible. Um, and it is what it is. That's it. You know, we've got to deal with it. I don't think we would have had to deal with it as badly as we are, but we're in it now. So that's it. We'll know next time. All right. Robert De Niro, an honor to talk to you, sir. Thank you so much and stay safe and healthy. We need you for when this is all over. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye. Be sure to tune in to CNN this Sunday for State of the Union. I'll be talking to Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Plus, I'll have an exclusive with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and the governors Larry Hogan of Maryland and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. It's all at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay at home. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.